0: Our scripture reading is from Galatians 1, 3, 1-7. O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having been by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Um, as we begin to uh, continue uh, in our study of the book of Galatians here this morning, um, I'd love to uh, ask for God's help to make these truths of the gospel uh, that Paul communicates in this book, Would He? I want to ask that he would make them fresh again in our lives. So let's pause and do that now. Father in heaven, whether we are in the process of just beginning to explore uh, what it might mean to follow Jesus or see his claims as true and life-changing, or we've walked in a relationship with Jesus for, for years, for decades perhaps. I pray that this morning through Paul's words that you inspired by the Spirit in the book of Galatians, we would be uh, in fresh ways um, encouraged in the good news that we have, the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, whether you are in grad school or grade school, uh, the end of the school year is in sight. It's true if you're a teacher, right? The the moment of summer break is almost here. Uh, But before you can get there, before you can finish the semester, before you can graduate, uh, there are those those final weeks of, of final exams and tests and papers and projects to be finished. And, and when I was a student, I always had sort of a, a love hate relationship with this period of time in the semester because uh, I, I dreaded the late nights of studying and long days of writing. But on the other hand, I loved the verdict. I loved the opportunity that school provided to give a clear verdict about your work. Uh, you, you see, school, success in school, was, was a clear way for me to hear someone say, Bill, you know what, you are good. You're really good at school. You are smart. You have something to offer the world. Um, By the way, it was the same reason growing up as a kid, I actually loved going to the dentist because through um, either really good brushing habits or the fact that my mom kept us away from from too much sugar or good genetics, whatever it was, I I never had a cavity until I was like a sophomore in college. And so every time I went to the dentist, it was like, wow, Bill, great job on your teeth again this time. And Keep up the good work. You know, I was homeschooled, so you had to kind of take what you could get in terms of <laughs> compliments and approval from people. Um, but, you know, I remember my freshman year of college, uh, the first semester, um, when the, the, the first set of, like, major homework papers uh, tests came back. Uh, it was the first exam, first major exam, and, um, and receiving that paper back. And uh, I was sitting in the cafeteria eating dinner, and, and someone said, oh, I, I just checked my, my mailbox, and uh, the, the papers are back. And so kind of with butterflies in my stomach, I, I finished the last bit of my dinner and then made my way alone over to this uh, other building where the student mailboxes were. It was this long, really kind of dimly lit hallway and there was all these, these mailboxes because back, back then they didn't, you didn't find out your grade from a, a portal or an email you just had to go to your mailbox and, and pull the paper on and then look at it and so I found my box and I messed with the combination two or three times it was still early enough I hadn't quite figured out how that worked again I was homeschooled I didn't have a locker you know I was trying to figure <laughs> out I, I figured out the combination on this mailbox and my hands are kind of trembling and I pull out the paper and I unroll it and I look for the grade and I took a deep breath 105 percent. Not only I got gotten all the, the questions right, plus all the extra credit right. Uh, and, and I was, I was, I was good. So I really was. Um, but that feeling of I'm good, I'm approved, the verdict, you know, it only lasted a couple of minutes. I remember even standing there in, the, in that dimly lit hallway, looking at that paper, staring at that grade, feeling so great. But the sunshine of that moment was almost immediately overcast by the clouds of the reality that well, but but now I got to do it again. I got to do the next paper, the next exam. That I was only as good at, until the, of, of that moment, and then said to prove it all over again. Now, of course, it's easy to look back at moments like that for myself, even and, and laugh kind of at that moment. But we don't ever really somehow outgrow that, do we? You know, it just looks different. And maybe for you it wasn't, it wasn't the classroom, or maybe it isn't the classroom if you're in school. Maybe, it's, maybe it was uh, athletics, um, or, or maybe it was being a part of a particular club or group or society at school, or maybe it was kind of reacting against all that, being kind of part of the nonconformist group. But Whatever it was, the, the, we all long for the same thing. We long for someone to tell us that we are right, that we are good, that we are worthy, that we have something to contribute, that, that our lives are meaningful. And, and we look to relationships, we look to our careers, we, we, if you have children, often we look to our children, we look at our neighbors, our friends, are, are we keeping up? Does my house or my car or my clothing say, I'm all right, I'm good, I'm making it, I'm succeeding? And, and whether or not you're a Christian, I think we all want many of the same things, don't we? And we're, we're not that different from the people in the churches of southern Galatia that Paul's writing to in this letter back in the first century. And we've been studying this New Testament letter of Galatians uh, for a couple of weeks now, and it's a challenging letter. It's in the second half of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul, who was an early church leader. It's one of Paul's first letters. It's one of his most challenging, passionate, intense letters. Paul is not messing around in this book. And we're calling this series, No Other, because because that's the message of Galatians. There is no other gospel, no other good news, but the one that we find in Jesus. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. Uh, And if we miss it, if we miss the good news of the gospel, the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the gospel that the other apostles proclaimed, that we miss everything. And so this morning, as we look at the first part of Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at the gospel center. What is the center, the foundation of our hope? And how does that hope in the gospel address, first, our, our need to see that we really do have a need? And second, the, the, the gospel deeply addresses that need that we have, that unending need for someone to tell us that we are right, that we are good that we were okay. But before we look at that, we first need to see that we will do anything to get right. We will do anything to get right. And that was the story of what was happening in these churches in Galatia. Now, at this time when Paul is writing this letter, the the churches in Galatia, in this part of the world, uh, they were uh, pretty new. In fact, the whole Jesus movement at that point was only a few decades old. The good news about Jesus' life, its death, his resurrection, his new life that he offers both here and now as as well as for eternity, it had reached this region of Galatia. Churches had begun. People were were flocking to this good news. And by this point, the the Jesus movement is no longer just a Jewish movement. See, Jesus was a Jew. He had come from the people of Israel And initially, in the very early days of the church, everyone who was a Christian was was also a Jewish person. But now, in the story, the the gospel, as God's plan had always been, has gone out to non-Jews, to Gentiles as well. That Jesus was the hope for Messiah, not just for the Jews, but he was the promised hope for all nations, for all people, for everyone. But now there's a big question. And the question is this, and this is what the people in Galatia, what they're wrestling with. That question is, do non-Jews have to become functionally Jewish in order to be a part of God's people? Because for so long, it was God's chosen people were this this nation of Israel, and they were identified by the law and the the Torah, the promises in the Old Testament, and these rituals and routines. So, Did you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian, to become a part of Jesus' people? And the answer that many people had begun giving to that question in Galatia was yes. Yes, the basis of our acceptance into the people of God is rooted in our adoption of the Jewish rituals and practices and law. That If you want to be a Christian, you basically have to become a Jew first. But Paul, he couldn't disagree more strongly. Look again at at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then then Paul answers, asks these set of intense questions. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? And Paul's point is that if, if, if you receive this new life in the Spirit by faith, do, are you going to continue in that life now by doing it on your own, in your own power, and your own strength, by keeping the rules? And Paul calls them fools. And Paul is not messing around in this letter. This is one of the number of places where he really drives at these Galatians. He says, and then he says, have you been bewitched? He says, look, the only way I can possibly conceive that you would believe what you're believing is that someone has, has put an imperious curse on you. And in case you're not a Harry Potter fan, uh, the, the, the imperious curse, right, was this curse that dark wizards would use to, to control people. And, and Paul's actually that language of bewitch. He's picking up on the language of, of pagan magic from the first century and basically saying, Has someone put a spell on you? Are they controlling you? That's the only way I can conceive that you would stop believing the truth of the gospel that I proclaim to go to this other thing. And Paul asked them, How did you, Galatians, how did you become Christians in the first place? Was it because of what you did or because of who you believed in? And now are you so foolish to think that, that because you became a Christian through hearing by faith that now you're going to stay a Christian by, by doing it on your own, by working for it? Paul say, if you didn't become a Christian by keeping all the rules, why do you think that you are going to stay a Christian by keeping all the rules? And Paul's point actually here it isn't that there's something wrong with the law or there's something wrong with the rules. His point is ultimately there's something wrong with us that the law can't fix, that the rules can't help. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with me. And because the problem is with me, we will do anything to get right. I mean, anything. I mean, just look at what the Galatians were willing to do to try to get right. These non-Jewish Galatians, they were, they were willing to, to receive circumcision and give up bacon to try to become right with God. <laughs> and, and, and we can laugh, and probably most of us here aren't trying to keep kosher in order to find our acceptance with other people or with our community or with God. But no, make no mistake, we are trying in some way to get right. And we will go to incredible lengths to get right. You might say, oh, sure. <laughs> I know I have some things I'm, I'm trying to prove or, or whatever. But, you know, I, of course, Bill, I wouldn't go to the, the you know, lengths of physical modification or, or changing my entire diet. But really? Because how many of us, right? How many of us endure physical pain and deprecation to, to look a certain way or to belong in a certain set of people? Whether it's logging time in the, to the tattoo chair or, or working, working out, pushing ourselves to the gym or adopting a certain diet or giving up certain foods in order to be accepted by a certain group of people or to look a certain way. And we still do these same kinds of things. We really aren't all that different from those in Galatia. You see, all of us, whether we are Christians or not, all of us have a default mode of trying to be our own savior, of wanting to be our own rescuer. And and there are two basic ways that we can go about that task, that project of self-salvation, of trying to give our own rescue, be our own savior. One way is the religious way. The other way is the irreligious way. The the religious way says, I'm going to work really hard, keep all the rules, do everything that I think God's asking me to do so that then he will owe me. That he'll have to give me a good life. He'll have to bless me because I've done everything he's asked. That's the religious way of being your own savior. You're not actually trusting Jesus. You're saying, if I do these things, then God will bless me. He has to bless me. Don't ever confuse that with the gospel. There are a lot of people in church who take a religious approach to being their own savior, but that is not the gospel. Then there's the irreligious way that you can go about that, and that is to just reject all the rules, to say, I'm going to define right and wrong for myself, I'm going to do my own thing, and that's how I'm going to find fulfillment. That's how I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to reject all of the rules. So there's a religious way to do that. I'm going to keep all the rules. I'm going to do all of these things. And then God owes me a good life. There's other way. I'm just going to reject that all together and do my own thing. But regardless of what way you choose, the result is always the same. For both approaches, whether you're religious or irreligious, the result of trying to be your own savior is always the same. And that is that you will have dramatic swings between being prideful and being despairing. You see, when we, we become prideful and think we're, when we think we're living up to our standard or to God's standard or whoever, whatever standard or bar we're, we're living for, when we think we're doing that, when we think we're doing well with that, we become prideful. But the moment that we sense we're failing at that, we, we sink into despair and, and we become despondent. Because it's all dependent on us in either case, whether it's religion or irreligion. So for example, if you've made your work, your career, or you've made your family your functional savior, if your work or, or your family is the thing that you look to in reality to say, I'm okay, I'm doing well. That when, when you are doing well in those things, when your company is growing, when, when you're getting bonuses, or your kids are behaving, or they're getting good grades in school, your tendency is to slowly, subtly start to become prideful. And you actually start to look down on other people who, who don't seem like they have it as much uh, together as you do. Maybe you don't say this out loud, but kind of in the back of your mind there's this place that says, man, why can't these other people just get their act together? I mean, the world would be such a better place if people just do what I do, if they just work hard, if they just get their, get their stuff together and just do this, right? This little pride starts to build up. We start to look down on others. But the second that your career starts to falter or your family starts to fall apart, then you fall into despondency and despair. Why? Why? because in those moments, you haven't just lost a, a good thing. You aren't just going through a difficult season. In those moments, you, you despair because the thing that you've been looking to for your approval, your rescue, the thing that you've been looking to to save you has abandoned you. Your Savior has left you. Your God, your functional God has forsaken you, and there isn't for anyone for you to turn to. So it's not just a hard season. It's not just a loss of a good thing. It's crushing. It's devastating. And your job, your family, if you make them your savior, they—they ultimately they will not, they cannot forgive you or show you mercy. Your job will demand all of you. And the more you give to it, the more it will ask of you. And the moment that you fail it, it will condemn you. And that's Paul's point when he writes in verse 10 and says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of law and do them. Paul is saying when you, when you look to the law, whether that's the law of Moses in the Old Testament as they were or, or the law of your career or the law of your family, whenever you look to a standard outside of yourself and you say, I'm going to live up to that and that's what's going to make me okay. Whenever you look to a law, you end up under a curse. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he means that if you're going to live by a law, if you're going to live by a standard and that's going to be the thing that rescues you, you have to do it perfectly. That's the only way to escape the curse. But but no one can do that. We, We all make mistakes. We all fall short of even our own standards. And therefore, no one who depends on a law for their rescue will escape the curse. And this, here the language of curse that Paul uses, this isn't like a Harry Potter curse. Uh, the language of curse, if you follow that through the storyline of the Bible from the very opening pages of the story all the way through the end, curse is this language of being under the, the judgment of God. And here's the thing, we can't keep our own rules. We can't escape our own self-judgment, much less perfectly keep God's rules and escape His judgment, right? Right? I mean, just think about your own inner dialogue, your own self-talk. We can't escape our own self-condemnation. Man, I'm not not doing these habits like I want. I'm not getting to the gym as much as I want. I'm trying to do this new thing, and you're just not getting it done. I'm, I'm not doing as much at work as I need to. I feel like I'm not getting as much done with my kids. We condemn ourselves plenty. We don't live up to our own standards, our own expectations much less God's much higher expectations and law. So what hope do we have then? Well, friends, this is the glorious center of the gospel that Paul lays out for us in the book of Galatians, that there is only one way to get right. Right? And here's what Paul says in the very next verse. In verse 11, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says it's absolutely hopeless to try to get right. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared right, to be declared just. It's impossible. It's hopeless to do that before God, to try to live up to a particular law or standard. We cannot do it. And our whole lives are evidence of this, that that we cannot live up to our, our own standards, much less God's standards. So here's the thing when Jesus came, he didn't lower the standard, he didn't lower the bar. Jesus actually raises the bar. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is teaching, he says, Look, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. He says, but I say to you, if you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus doesn't, doesn't lower the standard of the law. He actually elevates it to something even higher. He doesn't just deal with the outward action, but the, the inward motivation in the heart. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I, but I say to you, even if you're angry with someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. Jesus doesn't, doesn't lower the standard. He raises it from mere external conformity to heart motivation. And we, we can't live up to our own standards, much less Jesus' much higher standards. No one can be made right. No one can get right. No one can be declared right, which is what it means to be righteous, on the basis of keeping the law. No, no, the only way to get right, again, that's what it means to be righteous. This isn't a self-righteous kind of uh, goody-two-shoes righteousness. This is the, uh, being right in relationship with God. The only way to get right is by faith. And Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and a biblical scholar, he captures this so well in his paraphrase of these verses and his, his message paraphrase. Let's listen to this beginning in verse 10. It's going to be on the screen. Anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. And Scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's the real life. Peterson is so good here in verse 12. Rule keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule keeping. A fact observed in Scripture the one who does these things, rule keeping, continues to live by them. You see, the only way to get right is to believe God. The person who is in right relationship with God does that by embracing what God has done for them. And Paul is saying, Look, Jews, Gentiles, you both are accepted before God on the very same basis faith, not by keeping the law but by believing the promise of God. And he says that's the way it's always been. When when God set in, in motion his plan to redeem the world, when you go all the way back to the very beginning of the story of Scripture in Genesis chapter 12, you're just like five pages into your Bible at that point. God calls a person, a family, Abraham, Abraham's family, except Abraham doesn't have a family. It's just him and his wife. And they're old. They don't have any kids. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. And from your family, from this nation, the entire world is going to experience God's goodness and rescue and blessing. But as God's making this promise to Abraham, he doesn't have a kid, not even one. And he and Sarah are way too old to have kids. But Abraham believed God's promise. Abraham believed God. And Paul tells us in verse 6 that that credited to him righteousness. Look again at that that verse, starting in verse 5 in chapter 3. Paul says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? He's constantly contrasting these two. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's what Jewish people were known as. Sons and daughters of Abraham, sons of Abraham. Paul's point here is: who's really a part of God's family? Who is really a part of God's people? Who are really Abraham's children? not those who keep the law, because Abraham didn't have the law. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Abraham didn't even have the law. That didn't come until 400 years after Abraham. No, Abraham's true family are those who believe God, who believe God's promises. That's how we get right. That's what justification is. Justification is the center of the gospel. That God justifies us when we believe His promise. When we believe God's promise. We are declared right. We are declared righteous. It's even—it's a legal metaphor, a legal term, an acquittal in court. We're declared innocent. So again, this isn't an idea of being self-righteous. That's not—not not the picture of the word, but of being a right whole person in relate, right relationship with God and others. And that kind of righteousness, that kind of justification that comes by faith, it has massive implications for how we live. It's not just a good theological doctrine to, to know, but it, it transforms so much of life, and we could talk in in detail about that for a long, long time. I just want to give you a few examples of how this begins to change your life. Because justification through Christ means that God says you are first. He says you you are beautiful and good and right now. Today, those things are true of you. And just, just think for a moment, what is it that you hate most about yourself? the way, something about your body, the way you look, your personality. What do you want to hide from others? What do you wish you could take back? What do you wish you could undo? What are the things in your story that you're ashamed of? Any things that you've done? Or maybe it's things that have been done to you. See, when you believe God's promise, when you believe that he loves you and gave himself for you, he declares that you are right, that you are justified, that you are good, that you are beautiful, that you are worthy today, right now. Because of Jesus. Jesus. Despite all those things that you can't stand about yourself, all those things that have been done to you, all the ways that you've been hurt, Jesus says, in me, you are right, you are good, you are beautiful today. He's taken off those dirty, heavy, clinging clothes of guilt and shame and put on beautiful new clothes of his goodness and beauty. Second, Justification is also the guarantee that one day you will completely be made right and beautiful and good forever. (laughs) It's the guarantee that if you've been declared righteous by God in the gospel, in justification, that one day you will be completely transformed forever. God declares us to be righteous, and then he begins the work of actually transforming us here and now into the fullness of that declaration, You see, we aren't just saved from sin. We're also saved for a life of good work with Jesus here and now. And the faith that we have in Jesus fuels a life of transformation, not by rule keeping. Paul shows us again and again and again in Galatians. We can't change through the rules. Again, that's not the problem with the rules. It's a problem with us. There's something broken in us that keeps us from being able to keep the rules. But when that thing that's broken in us has begun to be transformed by the gospel, now we have the power of the Spirit. And we can begin to live in to the design of life that God has laid out for us. The life that we truly long to live. And the process of doing that, it's it's much more like learning a musical instrument or learning a language than it is just sort of waking up one morning to have the process finished. It's a, a long journey of practice and mistakes and failures and learning and coaching. But it's empowered by the Spirit. And one day, all of your shame, every regret and disappointment, loneliness, depression, it will all be gone. Why? Because those who God calls, he also justifies. And those he justified, Paul explains to us in his letter to the Romans, he will also glorify. Glorification is that forever part, that, that he will one day actually make us whole and complete and that work can never be undone. If he has declared that you righteous, then you know that he is in the process of making you right and he will complete that work. Nothing will be able to stand in its way. Uh, Third, there's there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more or love you less. You have been loved with an everlasting love. His love for you is not based on you. (laughs) Here's the thing, we've never given God a reason by anything that we've done for him to love us. He loves you because of who you are not because of anything you, you've done, but simply because you are a creature that he has made. He loves you because what he has done for you, not because of what you have done for him. And, and, and part of us kind of hates that, right? Because we're so locked into this pattern of earning, we want to say, well, there, there's this and this and this, that, that God, he, he's pleased with me because of all these things I've done. But in the end, our only hope is that that his love for us isn't based on anything that we've done. That his love is based on on who he is. Because it means that he will never condemn you, he will never leave you, he will never think poorly of you. Instead, and and this is one of my favorite passages in this tiny little book in the Old Testament called Zephaniah, promises that God rejoices over his people. He rejoices over you with singing. you are a Christian, God is so pleased with you. He loves you. He rejoices over you with singing. He adores you like a a mother adores a newborn baby. Have you ever watched a mom, like a brand new mom with just a a tiny infant, holding that baby and just the, the the love, the affection, the admiration... And that baby hasn't done anything for her, right? It's just been born. It's been alive for days. All it does is eat and sleep. It's not done anything. And yet there's such love and such delight. Christian, don't you know that's how God thinks of you? You are precious. He delights in you. He is pleased with you. The great lie of the enemy is that God is, is if, if you're a Christian, he's still somehow angry, he's still dissatisfied that you haven't done enough. No, he delights in you. He thinks of you like a mother thinks of that newborn child. He is so pleased with you. Again, this is one of the most infuriating and, and most joyful parts of the gospel, that he loves us, but not, not because of us. But because of him. But delight in that. Okay, fourth, uh, you no longer have anything to hide, anything to fear, or anything to prove. This means that we, in the gospel, because we've been given this, this declaration of righteousness, that we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't have to to fear what others might think of us anymore. We certainly don't have to to hide or prove or fear uh, any judgment or reprisal from God and certainly not from anyone else. There is nothing in your life that God does not already know about There's no shame that is harbored in your heart, no no guilt, there's no act that is hidden in your life that he doesn't already know about. There's nothing that you can hide from him and there is nothing that you can confess to him that is not already fully and completely dealt with in the cross on Jesus. When that knowledge begins to get deep inside of you, it breeds a transparency and a joy and a freedom because you know that even those darkest, most scary parts of our lives have already been dealt with on the cross. And then finally, that you can see yourself and others in the world like nobody else. You see, when you have this kind of incredible love from God, you are freed from despair. You're freed from, from needing to think of yourself all the time, approving yourself all the time. You can, can give yourself away to others because you know that God uh, can, will take care of you. And that kind of reality, it will transform the way you work. It will transform your friendships. If you're married, it'll transform your marriage. If you're a parent, it'll transform your parenting. Just if only for one reason, in all those spheres, it will transform them because you don't have to be right all the time anymore. You don't have to win every argument. It means that you can say you're sorry. Imagine your workplace. Imagine your home. Imagine your friendships. If If everyone you worked with or everyone you're friends with, they didn't have to, they could just admit they were wrong when they were wrong. They could just say they're sorry when they mess up. Because what's so hard about saying sorry? I even watch it in our in our four-year-old and our two-year-old, what's so hard about saying sorry? It's admitting that you're wrong. Because when you get to the point of saying, I'm sorry, you have to say, I actually messed up. You have to own that you were wrong. And why is that so traumatic for us people to own that we were wrong? Because if we are trying to be our own savior by keeping the rules, by obeying our standard, by living up to that, if we have to admit that we've failed in that, again, it isn't just that, well, I was a bad thing. We're actually threatening the foundation of our salvation, Admitting we're wrong, it's a, it's a devastating thing if we've built our lives on having to be right. But if our righteousness, if our getting right comes from outside of us, not by living up to our own standards or God's standards or some person's rules, then it's so much easier to admit you're wrong because you already know you're wrong. That's part of the truth of the gospel. It says we're so desperately broken that Jesus had to come to rescue us. If you're a Christian, you say, I, well, of course I know I'm wrong. Not just in, like, this moment I'm wrong. Like, I I said something unkind to my sister in this moment, but I know I'm, like, I'm cosmically wrong. And when you know you're cosmically wrong, yet declared right, now in the workplace, in your friendships, in your marriage, with your parenting, it's, it's like it's not a big deal to say you're sorry anymore. It breeds within you an incredible humility coupled with an incredible confidence unlike anything else the world has ever known. You'll humbly be able to say you're sorry without falling into despair. So how will you get right? How will you stay right? Will you keep trying to keep the rules? Will you keep trying to do all the work? Or will you look to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you? You see, the only thing that can free us from the curse is by looking to the one who became a curse for us. Again, Eugene Peterson. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it into himself. Do you remember that scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That's what happened to Jesus. When, that's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And now, because of that, the air is cleared and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews too. We are all able to receive God's life, His Spirit, in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it. Oh, Christ community, do not be foolish. Don't let anyone deceive you. It is only by faith in Jesus, that you can get right and you can stay right. Today, if you are in Christ, you are complete. You are accepted. The curse that you deserve has been taken by Christ and the blessing that was his is now yours. So stop trying to earn it. Stop looking for the blessing in other places. Believe the gospel. Lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would root this deep saving message of the gospel, that you would root it deep into our lives and that it would bear so much fruit in every part of our lives. Whether we have just begun in this walk of faith, maybe even just in this last 15 minutes come to see this is true for for us or whether we've been walking with you for decades would you protect us from ever thinking that we've outgrown the basic center of the gospel the good news that we are forgiven and declared righteous in jesus pray in his name and by the power of the spirit amen